Michael. Hava. I thought I'd never see you. I know, I know. I thought you'd be lost in an icy vortex. I know, I know. I wasn't. Well, hello. Where are you in the world, Carmen San Diego? Uh, where am I? I'm back home. I made it home. I was trapped away from home because it started snowing and I couldn't get back. Mm-hmm. But I made it home safely. Thank God. Yeah, yeah, I'm home. I had some Gatorade and some chips, so I'm feeling better. <laughs> so you're, if you've got all your essential nutrients, fully repelled. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, it's been good. It's been a good day. <sighs> How are How you? How are you? Oh, you're asking oh, me. Yeah, no, I'll go, and then you can say more in okay. a second. How are you, Hava? Baruch Hashem, I'm good. I uh, had a big, scary dentist appointment on Thursday. And it was terrifying. I got something called a gum graft, where they, content warning, dental work, (laughs) uh, they cut a piece of tissue off the top of my mouth and sewed it onto my gum on my lower teeth. It was really scary. I was really scared. I haven't been that scared about dental work in a while, partially because it was a new, it was like a periodontist, so it wasn't my usual guy. So I didn't know whether I could trust him or not. You know, but it went well and I've been recovering. I'm not in too much pain. I have a bunch of stitches in my mouth, which is a gross feeling. (laughs) Does it look cool, though? No, it's all covered with like a weird paste right now. Imagine if you had like a dried up piece of old gum stuck on your tooth, but you couldn't take it off because it was like a tiny little cast. Oh, wow. Okay. It's pretty annoying, honestly. Um, But I'm proud of myself for getting through it. Because I was really stressed out about it. What else is going on? You know, just been thinking about willpower a lot recently. Like, what is it? How do I get it? Mm. I feel like I have such a hard time doing the things I want to do. I spend so much time on the couch convincing myself to get up and do the things I want to do. Yeah, I feel like for my family, for the family that I grew up in, the answer to my solutions is like to just have self-discipline, to like just nut up basically and do it. And would that I could. I'm trying to like figure out if it's possible to cultivate whatever vibe it is that lets you just nut up and do it because i'd be happy to i'd be thrilled it's kind of weird to think that your family gave you the whole nut up and do it philosophy because it's like you have the anxiety of someone who's like nouveau riche but you're not so you don't even get the (laughs) side i have all of the nouveau with none of the riche so you know cursed as i am by this predicament I spent been spending a lot of time recently thinking about like is there anything I could be doing to sort of like build up my like ability to do the things I want to do to like decrease the ratio of sitting around to doing things. Yeah. I haven't come up with any strategies yet. I also know one thing about my body is that if I push it too hard, sometimes my entire nervous system shuts down. So, you know, always dancing with that devil so it's just like a weird vibe just pondering a lot of pondering of my own (laughs) predicament my own habits well i have two suggestions for you hava oh thank god first is make yourself accountable to someone else (laughs) what come on (laughs) no i'm listening i'm listening that was just an involuntary reflex it works. What do you think this podcast is? You think I would be such a righteous Jew if it wasn't for the fact? Fe- 
Look, if you were an AI, if I was making a podcast with an AI, I would be slacking way more. What if I am an AI, Michael? What if this is a a her situation? (laughs) Look, make yourself accountable to other people, Mm -hmm. number one. And number two, just try to remove yourself from our society and the internet, I would say. Oh, get right on that. You got to get the dopamine loops closed. But, like doing that you're perfectly encapsulating the like what i want to do is stop scrolling but i need the willpower to stop to cultivate the willpower to stop it's not that you want to stop scrolling right it's that you want to do something else besides Mm -hmm. scrolling sure so really the first step is to stop scrolling the stopping the scrolling part isn't the hard part it's the doing the thing after the scroll so i'm saying is just spend like I don't know, six months to a year, not doing anything, but not scrolling either. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So you right, get okay, used to it. Six months to a year, completely just laying in a dark room. Yes, yes. Like a mushroom. Yes. Yeah, so your body like readjusts to like um, the work reward cycle. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. This is, um, just, this is an idea. Are these programs you've successfully implemented? No, no. I'm in the <laughs> no, same boat as you. No, of course not. No, I want to do things. But these are thoughts you've had. I'm incapable of doing anything. Here's what I do. Okay, Hava, I'm in the exact same situation with you. I get up. I found a website that looks like it was made in 1997 that has the hardest Sudoku and Sudoku variants available on the internet. (laughs) These Sudokus take me, if I were to concentrate, they would take me like 12 hours to do. They're, They're really intense. That's what I do with my time instead of the things I should be doing, like prepping podcasts. Wow calling my grandmother, all these things. We're uh-huh. in the same hole, you and me. I don't know what the right. solution is. Except your hole has Sudoku in it. Grunge Girl makes fun of me. She's like, you love you love oh. the number seven more than you love me. You love, <laughs> you love <laughs> and squares. And she's right about that. And it's true. <laughs> and it's true. I love seven, Jerry. Is, is, um, <laughs> uh, okay. He loves his Sudoku more than he loves me. Oh, my God. Oh, the Sudoku girl. Anyway, uh, enough of that farce. Speaking of that, as a callback to our previous episode where we talked about famous people fucking up, uh-huh. I feel like Jerry does an okay job of maintaining his shit. I don't know. Jerry Seinfeld? Not. Yeah. No, absolutely not. No, he, he doesn't? a 17-year-old girlfriend when he was a full adult. Really? Yes, Michael. Jerry Seinfeld sucks. Okay, that is bad, but... Nope, just... <laughs> All right, fine. Just suck those words back into All your right. mouth. All right, okay, okay. They're, they've Whatever been you're sucked. Gonna say. They've been sucked. Never mind. Jerry Seinfeld sucks. You personally heard it here first, apparently. Look, I, I don't like it when you talk about willpower because you and I, we've come to a consensus. And the consensus is we have free will, right? But not as <laughs> but much. But also we don't. But also we we don't. So get over it. Right. I know. I know. And also, I should give myself credit. I've made a lot of improvements in my life over the years that it has lasted so far. Thank God. I mean, I really should embrace what I tell other people, which is that, like, you know, most things are sort of like getting a cat to sit in your lap. Yeah. You can't pick up the cat and put it in your lap and expect it to sit there. All you can do is create the fluffiest and warmest lap possible. You're doing great, Hava. You know what? You're doing great. How about that? Oh, that was nice of you to say. Michael, how are you? How am I? I'm fine. I'm trying to um, wean myself off of these incredibly difficult master level Sudoku puzzles. (sighs) 
uh-huh. for the sake of my family. I can't wait to see you on a Jerry Springer show with your little Chiron under your name that says, like, Michael Sokolovsky, self-described Sudoku addict. Huh? Yeah. What else is going on? I kind of think people shouldn't become homeowners, I've decided. Oh, twist. I can feel my concerns and anxieties slowly transforming. What I'm trying to say, Hava, is that the plow person came and they plowed the driveway. Okay? Well, thank God you finally got plowed. We, Yeah, we did. And goddamn, they ripped up the fucking lawn and the flower bed. Oh my god. Wow. Okay, this is very homeownery. Here's the thing. I hate that I give a shit. I know, know? but also like gardens are good and I know. Gardens are good. They're good they're a good thing. If it was like you're you were worried about your perfectly trimmed, like well watered Saint Augustine lawn, that would be one thing. But gardens are much better than that. Also, it's that wet part of winter where everything's just kinda ugly. You know, it's like depressing, ugly, dirty snow winter. There was snow on the ground for here a little while the other day, and it was really nice. Ace took his first walk in the snow, which (gasps) our patrons got to see on our Patreon. Oh, very nice. Did you do a video by any chance? I posted a video, yeah. Oh, 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 Go check check it it out. out. Let's check it out. Speaking of, this is a good segue. I was going to say something before we get into the content of the episode, which is just that if you enjoy Hi, How Are You? You can help us keep making the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash hi, how are you? There is a huge backlog of bonus episodes available in the patron-only feed. And also we post stuff sometimes just for patrons like our dog pics or behind-the-scenes stuff. Patrons have like special little conversations with each other on our episode comment threads. We used to make a patron episode every week, and now everybody gets the same minutes of content per week as they did when we made patron episodes every week we just don't make any of it exclusive so if you were a patron for the patron episodes you're still getting the content just without the keeping other people away from the content anyway i have to pitch that patreon every so often because we don't bring it up very much on the show become a patron michael yes today we're here to talk about russian doll Season two. That's right. Episode four. That's right, we are. The Russian doll journey continues. Mm-hmm, it does. And it's a very special episode in season two because it's the first Alan episode. It's not 100% Alan, but it's a lot of Alan. It's a lot of Alan. I feel like it's a little bit fan service because we finally see Alan have, you know, a quote unquote gay kiss. True. And thank God we do. What a blessing. Our episode opens. Immediately different because there's a blue title instead of a red title like we usually have. We see Alan in the bath, like a little baby in a mikvah, getting ready to be born. He's so happy. He's He's like clearly having such a wonderful time. He goes to the door and there's a cute little German boy at the door bringing him a little box of sweets. Before that happens, there's like a lot of just him around the apartment by himself. I was confused. Why is he happy? and Where is he? And my guess before I saw the boy was, oh, he's Alan. He's anal, really high strung. He's just loving the mid-century decor. He's just obsessed (laughs) with the mid-century decor. That must be what's going on. This is some joke about his aesthetics. But then you're right. We find out that he's with some 
man or something? Right. Some some little German boy, and the German boy calls him Agnes. Honestly, I mean, you can tell that Alan is somewhat uncomfortable with the romantic tension that Agnes, whoever she is, has with this German boy. Mm-hmm. But also, he's like, but maybe... Maybe so. Maybe I'll just go with it. Yeah. You know, like he's he seems very open to the experience of being Agnes, which I found incredibly gay. Yes, yes, yes. So we finally figure out that Agnes is his grandmother. Right, right. Agnes is his grandmother. So we go back to the present and we see Alan and Nadia playing a game of chess together. And Alan's sort of talking about what it's like being in East Berlin in 1962 when Germany is still divided and he is living the life of his grandmother. That's where his time travel subway takes him. Nadia is immediately like, are you fucking someone? Like, who are you fucking? She says Alan was the greatest fuck of her life, which I thought was very entertaining. That was a funny little line. Um, And she's also like, what? You know, mistake of the past are you going to fix? And he's like, no, we're just in the past to vibe. It's fine. Which is feels very uncharacteristic of Alan from season one. He must be really loving dating this little German boy. He just loves the little German boy, I guess. Yeah, good for him. Alan is is having a grand old time. Nadia takes the receipt for the gold train to Ruth to hang out with Ruth and try to figure out more clues on the path to tracking down the gold train. They talk about how the Nazis were on a bunch of speed throughout their entire reign in power. Is that true? I honestly have no idea, but it makes sense. Yeah, I guess so. Ruth is looking rough. She has a bunch of meds. I'm feeling worried for Ruth in this scene. She's coughing a lot. She seems tired. Yeah, I'm a little afraid. I I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm a little afraid that uh, that that Ruth is going to die soon when Nadia isn't around when she's time traveling. Mm, that would be sad. Ruth encourages Nadia to take Maxine to Budapest to see what the deal is with the gold train and follow her heart mm-hmm. and explore. She says that you're almost 40. A bit of a reference to... The first season when Nadia turns the age of her mother, it all takes place on her birthday. So Nadia and Maxine go to Hungary. Uh, Nadia explains that she's also half Hungarian. uh, So I wrote down in my notes, so it's actually Hungarian doll. They do a really funny fuck, marry, kill where we find out that Maxine maybe would have chosen to fuck Hitler out of Hitler, Dracula and Frankenstein. And they're like in Hungary doing their thing. Yeah. And then... We're back to Alan. Alan hanging out in an apartment with a bunch of cute Germans. They're planning a big escape from East Germany. And Alan is like uh, clearly out of his depth. He's like freaking out and everyone is like, Agnes, what's the deal? Like you were basically a hard ass up until just now. Which is funny to think that Alan's grandmother was like this bold hard ass lady and Alan is just a tiny little baby. He's like, do something. We can't do anything. That's too dangerous. This is all reminding me of the fact that we've all been inside of our grandmother's womb. True. This is like total factoid, factoid for the pod. Your mother's ovaries were present in her when carrying your mom's fetus. Right. Everyone, everyone who has, who will have eggs, has all their eggs with them in the womb. That sounds like a declaration <laughs> from a court. <laughs> I know. The king declares. Everyone, let them have eggs. The, everyone who has eggs, who will have the eggs, was born <laughs> of eggs 
dies with eggs. Everyone born of the egg shall become the egg. Um, you all know. You all know what I'm trying to say. Yes, we are all eternally present within each other for all time back until the very first person. Yep. This goes back to what we talked about in like the previous episode about the rabbis were talking about because we all came from Adam. So that's why we say whoever kills someone, it's like they destroyed a whole world because we all contain infinite potential of other lives within ourselves. And that's cool. And that's showbiz, kid. So Nadia and Maxine are in Hungary. They find a descendant of the officer who stole all of her family's goods. They follow him around and end up going to a giant warehouse party. There's a lot of flipping back and forth between Alan and Nadia on this episode. Nadia says, time zones, what a concept, which is great. And Maxine talks about place lag, this concept that it's not only that how much the time changes when we travel from place to place, but like something inherent about our bodies is not made to travel that much difference that quickly. And so we get lag just from like moving too fast, basically. Is that like a real thing or is that just uh, Maxine kind of making up silly excuses for... I don't know if it's a real thing or not, but I'm going to bring it back later. Okay. So we'll we'll have time to talk about it and think about it. But I think it's talking about something real, even if it's not real. Mm. Like, I think our relationship to place is profoundly weird as humans living in the time that we live in. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's really what Maxine is saying, even if the science of it doesn't all work out exactly like she's saying. Maxine and Nadia go to a giant warehouse party. Maxine is absolutely ready to fuck this Nazi descendant, Christoph Halage. Another instance of characters being like, you look like a piece of shit. I'm going to fuck you. He seems kind of not bad. He you know? seems like the worst. Really? Oh, he seems horrible. So they go to the warehouse party and he seems bad because Nadia sneaks down to the basement and finds a bunch of Nazi memorabilia. Yeah, that's a bad sign. This is a thing that happens for sure. There are families that have like Nazi. I wrote this down in my notes. I called it the Nazi box. (laughs) It's like there are families that just have the Nazi box like buried in their closet. Wow, that's wild. It's, it's, It's fucking weird. Yeah. I started thinking about what I would do if I were a descendant from a Nazi and I like got a Nazi box. Right. Probably just like donate it to some museum. You know, I wouldn't yeah. want it around. I mean, I guess Christoph, while he is seems not to be an out and out Nazi, which is a point in his favor, he just still seems to kind of suck. He still just seems like a dude who is like rich enough to own a giant warehouse, which automatically predisposes me to hate him. I'm not sure if it was like a flop house situation or he was it's rich. pretty big and well equipped to be a flop house. Well, you know, it's not San Francisco. It's it's Hungary. <laughs> right. Hungary known for its luxurious flop houses. Maybe it's cheaper to get a flop house. Uh, and he know. has enough drugs to give DMT away. Yeah, that that's true. Uh, Nadia and Maxine, speaking of DMT, Kristoff, once they discover his Nazi box, he's like, well, I'm going to help you. And the way I'm going to help you is by letting you do this DMT that I have. Wait, wait, wait. Before he does that, though, he's like, look, you're a stranger. I'm not going to tell you about all the fucked up shit in my family history, like right off the bat. So he does mm-hmm. say that, which is totally valid. And... There's probably a valid reason for keeping your grandfather's Nazi stuff in a box. Maybe you're still processing. We don't know how long he's had the Nazi stuff. We don't know how he's dealing with the Nazi stuff. 
He seems to not be happy about the Nazi stuff. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I can twist my brain around to imagine myself in a Kristoff situation, it would feel weird to just throw it away because it would feel like I was saying, like, I'm free from this. This has nothing to do with me, which is like denying the impact of the past on our lives. You know, like it would feel weird to just throw it away. I guess donating it to a museum would be the ideal situation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it would be a challenge for sure to figure out how to respond to a revelation like that. There's two people that I've met who have Nazi boxes. Like because of their ancestors. Yes, yes. I think in both of those cases, they're quite fucked up. In fact, yeah. one of them reminded me quite a bit of... Of Kristoff. Yeah, a little bit. Something about it was familiar to me. So, yeah, you know, I don't envy that situation, the Nazi bomb For situation. Sure. For sure. And I totally understand the desire to disassociate and use drugs. Right, through DMT. Yeah. Kristoff offers him DMT. DMT is like an intense but short psychedelic experience it tastes like mothballs in my experience i thought it was really gross i wasn't able to have a very full dmt experience because i struggled to hold it in my lungs for long enough because i thought it tasted so gross i don't know if i just had access to shitty dmt or what but basically they do some crazy psychedelics and they have this crazy trip personal jesus plays which is always a great choice and like everybody from the whole show is a part of this psychedelic trip and they're all making out at the warehouse party and then nadia and maxine suddenly awake in a jewish graveyard and they're like what the fuck what happened what did we do where are we who are we as they're leaving on their way out they see that there is a grave in the jewish graveyard for a priest for a Catholic who would normally not be buried in the Jewish graveyard. So that's clearly a sticky note going to be brought back in the future. They spend too long on that point for it to not be a plot point later. And Maxine's like, do you want to keep looking? Should we go find Kristoff again? Nadia's like, no, let's just go home. So they go home. Nadia talks to Ruth again. And Ruth is like, we always think closure is something we can find out there. But like, it's not. Um, so just like come home and hang out with me. And instead, Nadia gets on the train to go back to the 80s. Yeah. But surprise, she wakes up in 1940 something on a train with Nazis. Yeah, a train with Nazis. Interesting thing Grunge Girl noticed about this episode. So it's like, seems to be 1944, Nazi, Hungary. That's what seems to be happening. There's Hungarian mm -hmm. being spoken. But as the train pulls in, you see the reflection of the train. And the train is like a New York subway train. That might be just like a uh, little I put in my thing. notes, it's still MTA in the mirror. I don't know if that was a mistake. Nah, probably wasn't a mistake. No, I think I'm sure it was a, just like a... I mean, I don't know if it means something. I don't know what that symbolism would be, but I'm, I'm sure it's just there to increase the vibes. Oh, and scooching back a bit, somewhere in the middle of this Nadia Budapest trip, there's another cut to the Allen stuff where he goes back to 1962 and finds that Lenny and his friends have gone in the secret passage under the Berlin Wall and gotten out of East Berlin. Or maybe gotten caught. He doesn't know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But he thinks that might be his Coney Island yes. situation. Maybe. If he can only help make sure that all goes right. My theory is I think that his grandmother was pregnant with his mom. At that time? Yes. 
Yes. Oh, interesting. I will just say that if you watch this episode, you can realize something very cool just via the first scene of this episode. You can realize something about the overarching and interconnecting plot. But I want to spoil it. Oh. But just know that there was a, a stealthy revelation if you have a keen eye for detail. Okay, should I rewatch it? Will I get it? I didn't get it my first watch. I don't think I would have ever gotten it unless I watched it a second time, which I have now done. <laughs> All right, that's exciting. Well, that's good. Yeah. And you'll remind me of this when we get to the revelation of everything. And then you'll be like, oh, that's what you meant. Interesting. And it'll be great. Neat. It'll be great. So, yeah, good episode, I thought. Oh, yeah, I thought it was good. You know, it's a good. I enjoy anytime Ruth is giving us sound advice. I'm always a fan of that. I found I struggled with the Kristoff stuff. I was like, I don't I don't know. I didn't find the party sequence very compelling. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it's all very like magical realist, but like that kind of standoffish maybe or aloof guy. I mean, I don't have a lot of negative experiences with guys like that. I haven't dated yeah. them, you know, like the way I'm sure you've gone through like many baker's sure, dozens. <laughs> You're sure I have. So to me, I don't know. I just, I end up making excuses uh, for them and being like, I can see why they're all fucked up and have Nazi boxes lying around, mm -hmm. you know, and are kind of a bit of a hedonistic, nihilist, weird, Eastern European style goth kind of guy, like I probably mm -hmm. would be, too, if I were, like, descended from Nazis, but generally had a moral disposition and was a, attempting to be a good person. I can see how that could devolve into, uh, like, whoa, dark shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway. Did you bring some texts? I brought texts, but I mostly brought vibes that I want to think through with you okay. on the show. Well, let's start with a text and then give me a vibe. Okay, okay, okay. Um, Little text, little text. I'm going to read you a little something from Sihot Haran, which okay. is a compilation of things about Rabbi Nachman that was compiled mm. by the Breslov Research Institute, which I think is like located in New York. They're really into Rabbi Nachman, so they compile a bunch of stuff. This is about cemeteries. Okay. I attached to in the episode was they were in the oh, cemetery. Interesting. It's very, very interesting what's going on there. And I just want to talk vibes about that. But first, I'll just bring this little text. The Reb explained, the Reb in this case is Rabbi Nachman, to his daughter. When you visit your parents' graves, it is best to ask those who are buried nearby to inform your parents that you are there. Though most souls depart to their destiny, not all souls ascend to their intended place, and many remain near their graves. Therefore, it is best to tell these other souls to inform your parents of your arrival. But when you visit a tzaddik, you need not worry that he is not there, for the death of a tzaddik is like going from one room to another. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit inscrutable to me, but mm -hmm. kind of neat. This idea that some souls kind of stick around where the body is buried, mm -hmm. others go off to the next realm, Mm -hmm. And these ones that in this intermediate space, I guess if you're visiting your parents' grave, you can kind of use them as messengers to tell your parents that you're near the grave. Mm -hmm. And then Sadiqs are a kind of different category where you don't need to worry about 
if you visit their grave, if they'll hear you, because the text goes on and makes a comparison of if you walk from one room to another and close the door, you can still hear the person talking to you through the door. Right. It's like a tzaddik is so close to the veil, like between this life and the next, that once Got there- it. Okay. The closer to death, the closer to God, says Rabbi Nachman. Yeah. What do you think of that? What do you think of that, Hava? Interesting. It reminds me of what we talked about when we talked about reincarnation and magnetic souls and the idea of God popping our souls out of our body like a magnet. It seems like Rabbi Nachman is making a case that some souls have like a stronger sense of direction or like a, a stronger momentum and, and like focus in getting to their destination, which feels very connected to that vibe of like the push and pull of all the different forces potentially affecting us in the afterlife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the soul ends up ideally from the soul's perspective, reincarnated into another family member or into right. someone else. Now we can add another three categories. We can add the soul kind of hangs around the grave. The soul mm -hmm. goes off somewhere. Maybe that's reincarnated. Maybe it's somewhere else. But they can be reached by these souls, these intermediary souls. Right. They still have an ear to the door. Yep. And then there's the third category of the tzaddik soul, which is like their death is almost like a, it's a nothing burger or it, their death. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's it's just a phase, man. Right. They're like not even, they were like basically already dead to begin with. They've transcended They've transcended death. death. Okay, the reason I bring this because I thought the most interesting scene was the graveyard scene. I was trying to understand what was the whole point of this trip to Hungary. It doesn't mm -hmm. advance the plot. The only real substance we get is the graveyard scene where we have this reference to probably some future character we're going to know a lot more about this mm -hmm. this priest who's buried and the fact that nadia says this is just like in schindler's list when she's explaining to maxine why there's stones on the grave like the last scene right. of schindler's list where all the jews and the descendants are putting the stones on schindler's grave so mm -hmm. you're making this reference to this character who's the titular character of the movie so this character is probably going to be very important and is going to advance the plot. Like, this must be the purpose of the trip to Hungary. Right, is to introduce us to that priest grave. Yeah, I was thinking of the imagery that preceded them waking up in the graveyard, the hallucination scene, and part of it is Nadia coming out of a grave. Oh, right. She's like walking up a staircase coming out of a grave. Yeah, and it and it made me think about, you know, the visitation stones, like the purpose of the visitation stones, lots of different theories. One of the theories is pebble and in hebrew is it's a roar mm -hmm. but that also means bond mm -hmm. and there's ideas that like the stone is for helping the soul stay kind of connected to us or maybe even the earth or to god or keeping the soul down not like in a bad way but like in a good way historically you use stones in an arid climate to you know cover the shallow grave so animals literally don't like take the body out of the grounds there's that, but I think it's there's also a spiritual weighing down the soul and how that's the opposite of the images that we see Nadia doing, coming out of a right. grave. She's not being held down. She's just like floating around. This, you know, text that I brought reminded me of like these souls some are held down to the grave, some aren't. It reminded me of these other myths of vampiric style possession. I read one myth from the Middle Ages where it was rumored that all this death was caused in a village because... A woman's 
corpse wasn't watched or properly taken care of. And, and mm-hmm. there's all these ideas of the stones are protecting that person or the people visiting the cemetery from demons and evil spirits. What Nadia is doing is like she's stirring up the past. She's trying to change mm. the past. She's doing stuff that I think we both know is probably not good, probably not what she should be doing. And the imagery right. around that is coming out of graves and kind of the opposite of putting a stone on a grave, the opposite of a visitation stone. So that's kind of like the weird muddy soup of burial practice that I was swimming in when I watched mm. this episode. I'm going to bring my text because I think it accompanies yours in a way I didn't expect. So what I latched onto in this episode was travel and like travel narratives in the spiritual tradition. So I brought one, a really interesting travel narrative. So we read on Horyot 10a, Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yehoshua and traveling together on a ship. Rabban Gamliel had sufficient bread for the journey. Rabbi Yehoshua also had sufficient bread, and additionally, he had flour. The journey lasted longer than expected, and Rabban Gamliel's bread was finished. So he had to rely on Rabbi Yehoshua's flour for nourishment. Rabban Gamliel said, Did you know that we would have such a substantial delay in our journey, and that's the reason you brought flour? Rabbi Yehoshua said, There's a star that rises once every 70 years and misleads sailors. And I said, perhaps that star will rise during our journey and mislead us. Rabban Gamliel said, so much wisdom is at your disposal, and yet you still must board a ship to earn your livelihood? Rabbi Yehoshua said, before you wonder about me, wonder about two students that you have on dry land. Rabbi Elazar Chizma and Rabbi Yochanan bin Gudgeda, who are so wise that they know how to calculate how many drops of water there are in the sea. And yet they have neither bread to eat nor clothes to wear. So Rabban Gamliel made up his mind to make them the heads of the academy. And when he went to dry land, he sent a messenger to them to tell them to come. But they didn't come. And he again sent a messenger, and they did come. And he said, do you think I'm granting you an honor? And you didn't want to come accept it because you want to be humble? I'm granting you a servitude. As it is stated, you will be a servant to these people today. 1 Kings 12, 7. So... Quick re-summary. Okay. Two bros go on a trip. Yes. They both bring bread, but one of them also brings flour to make more bread. And that's because he knew or suspected that a deceitful star might rise and mislead the sailors during their trip together. And the other bro said, if you're so wise to bring flour, how come you have to board a ship, which is incredibly dangerous, to earn your livelihood? And the other bro said... Before you go questioning me, you should think about your own students who are so wise that they know the number of drops in the sea, but they're poor as hell. So you should take care of them before you're worrying about me getting on a ship. So he says, okay, I am gonna, I will worry about them. You know what? I'm going to make them heads of the academy so that they can be taken care of well enough to befit their wisdom. They don't want to accept the position because they don't want to accept honor They want to be humble, like a good rabbi should. And he says, basically, like, it's not an honor. I'm, like, giving you a really hard position of servitude to the community. So, like, don't worry about it. I can imagine this being a tough love lesson for, like, a new crop of budding rabbis for when they go to rabbinical school or something like that. Right. Don't dream about being the head of the academy because it's hard. Yeah, it sucks. Don't do it. So, the reason that I brought this story is because travel narratives are like a big thing in lots of spiritual traditions, Uh, especially in Judaism in the Zohar and in Kabbalah. 
so many stories of the Kabbalah happen like when a group of rabbis are on the road together and they see something magical or do something magical. This is also true in the Zen Buddhist tradition of koans. A lot of those spiritual riddles occur when two monks or two nuns are on the road. And I was thinking about this because Nadia's journey, I was also wondering what purpose Nadia's journey to Hungary serves. Yeah, And instead of thinking about the priest, which I agree is also probably the purpose, I also was thinking about how easily Nadia was able to let go of searching for Kristoff when they woke up in the graveyard, and how up until this point she's been dogged and relentless in her pursuit of the coins, and like in her pursuit of the mystery to the neglect of other things in her life. And yet she wakes up this day after a single day and hungry, and is like, you know what, it's fine. I can just go home. Like, I don't need to push myself. Right. Like, it's a moment of wisdom. She kind of finally yeah. comes to her senses for a moment. Thinking about place lag that Maxine talked about, our bodies moving from place to place. And part of the reason that place, that travel narratives are such a big deal in so many spiritual traditions is because traveling is an inherently, like, liminal space. You are especially in pre-modern societies, intensely defined by your connections to the people in the place where you live. For a lot of people, especially in Talmud times, like those would be the only people you would ever know. And so if you traveled a significant distance, like a journey by ship, you were essentially completely untethered to all that made you what you were before. It was also incredibly dangerous, which is why Rabban Gamliel makes the comment about them getting on the ship, because ship journeys were incredibly dangerous and even journeys by road of a significant distance were incredibly dangerous and so travel narratives are really significant because travel is like a time when anything can happen you can gain a new insight you can encounter a strange wonder hierarchies can be upended and everything can be turned topsy-turvy part of the reason i think it's during a travel narrative that these two people are picked to be the new heads of the academy is because it's like Anything's possible when you're on the road, you know? You can make these big spontaneous decisions that change the hierarchies of your institutions because you're in this sort of in-between space that you're not normally yeah, in yeah. as a big, powerful chacham like Rabban Gamliel. Part of what I think is impacting Nadia is she's away. She's away from New York, which has been the site of everything we've known about Nadia up until this moment has yeah. been in New York. And it's been intensely connected to New York. Like the New York of 1982 has been a huge character in this story. I don't think it's a coincidence that she's able to change her attitude so much when she's on this journey. Yeah, yeah. It now makes me think of like how refreshing it is just narratively to uh, not have 1982 or 1980s New York. Have a break <laughs> from that. Yeah. At least the way it's portrayed in the show. But now I'm wondering, like, the role of Maxine. Like, why does right. Maxine go? We need a spinoff series about Maxine. Yeah, yeah, we do need a spinoff series about Maxine. It's like she's the connection to New York. You have a bit of a tether and a witness to the changes that are happening to you. Mm -hmm. That's why you traveled to friend. I think her reaction, I'm really jet lagged. I want to sleep with myself now. 
one right. of her lines is, I want to sleep with myself now, and then I want to sleep with a Hungarian. That's another aspect of travel. Why does travel make people horny? Yeah, they're uninhibited in other ways. Part of the why well, I decided to bring this in like immediately after you're bringing up the priest instead of saying more is because I feel like it's relevant to like Nadia is untethering the past. You know, she's taking off the ballast that keeps the hot air balloon down. And the travel is also like lightening her and allowing her to, to, to transform and be different. And I think those two things are like very interwoven in this episode. I was also thinking about how I don't know if this is present in the episode at all, but it was very present for me thinking about how since COVID especially, but even before, no matter how much we travel, we're all still connected to the same digital space. So none of us are ever free from our connections. And so our homes are like nowhere. We're not like deeply connected to place in the way that some of our ancestors might have been. This is obviously not a universal experience. Many people are deeply connected to place, but... Many of us are not deeply connected to place, and yet we also can't escape the universal digital place yeah. that we're all tied into. And so even when we travel, we have sort of a diminished experience of that feeling of lightness. Yeah, uh, yes. To be a merchant marine early 1900s. <laughs> oh, what a life. That would have been good. Just like, yeah, the connections that make us who we are are more omnipresent than perhaps they were for people in the past. And there's probably something beautiful that's lost as a result of that. And probably something else that's gained. I don't know. I really love to travel. I haven't gone anywhere in a long time, certainly not since COVID started. I really love that magical feeling of being on the road in a car, driving 10, 13 hours, and just like getting out at a gas station in a state that all I've never been to and will never go to again. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, no one here knows me. Like, I don't even know me. We'll never see each other ever again. I could be anyone. Oh, I haven't been to a diner in a long time. I want to go to a diner. Uh, I love diners. So what I'm saying is that Nadia should go to Flavortown. What's Flavortown? It's a Guy Fieri thing. Oh, okay. But here's the thing. Okay, she travels. She, like, does the thing. She's lightening her load psychically. She's not into the gold coins. And then she comes back and is like, but you know what? I just need one more hit. I need one more hit of that load. Yeah, right. She goes back in. And she she fucked herself. Now she's in Nazi Hungary. Yes, perhaps. Or perhaps. Okay, let's. Th this is like getting a little bit galaxy brain about it. But perhaps it's she's finally not so magnetized to the immediate trauma of her mother that she's able to go in deeper to the like epigenetic trauma of her family's Holocaust experience. Well, okay, that would be cool. But I'm a little scared because the scene before this she's hanging out with ruth but ruth is like come and visit me like yeah and she chooses to go instead and the way time seems to work is that the same amount of time seems to go by in both places you know right um it's right. just like a different time zone except in 1980s so i'm a little scared that time is going to work the same way here except it's the 1944 and ruth is going to die or something while she's off gallivanting with this priest, probably, is my guess, who's buried in the Jewish cemetery, or the original Nazi dude who confiscated all the shit and put it on the train. I don't know. I want to think you're right, Hava, but I'm mm -hmm. nervous that this is a step back. Well, 
much like our episode of Russian Doll ended on a cliffhanger, so too must this episode of our podcast. This has been a lovely episode to make. Thank you all for listening to it. Thank you, Michael, for being my co-host. Oh, thanks for being my co-host. Yeah. Become a patron if you're able. If not, just like tell your friends about our show. Give us a good review on iTunes. We'll post more dog pics to the Patreon, we promise. We're cooking up some really cool ideas for the future that we'll tell you all about really soon. Yes. And we'll keep making cool stuff, and we'll talk to you next week. Shavuotov. Shavuotov. Shavuotov.